be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 79 to 81 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. In the last chapters, we learned of the final defeat of Athens by the Spartans. In tonight's story, we will learn of Cyrus, the young son of King Darius of Persia. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 79 The March of the Ten Thousand In 404 BC, soon after the disaster of the Agospatani, Darius, king of Persia, died. His eldest son, Artaxerxes, succeeded to his father's throne. Sirius, the younger son, who was present at his father's death, was accused by Tissaphernes of trying to secure the throne for himself. Artaxerxes believed Tissaphernes, and Sirius was arrested and would have been put to death had his mother not pleaded that his life might be spared. The king listened to his mother's request and set his brother free. He even allowed him to govern the provinces that had been his in his father's lifetime. But Cyrus felt no gratitude to his brother. He hated him, and was determined, if it were possible, to seize his throne. So he hired a large number of Greek soldiers for now that there was peace between Athens and Sparta, many of them were idle and glad to take service under Cyrus. The prince pretended that he was going to fight against Tissaphernes, and no one save himself and the Spartan, Clearchus, who was the leader of the Greeks, knew that the army was going to Babylon to fight against Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Among the Greek soldiers 
was Xenophon, a scholar and a pupil of Socrates, who wrote the story of this expedition. Early in 401 BC, Cyrus assembled his troops at Sardis. When they arrived at Tarsus, a city on the coast of Cilicia, the soldiers began to suspect Cyrus was going to lead them against Artaxerxes. They were not afraid of the great king, but they were afraid to leave the sea behind them, for that was ever a terrible thing to the Greeks. So they refused to march further. Clearchus, who was a stern commander, and no favourite with his men, tried in vain to quell their rebellion, but all his efforts were vain. Not a step forward would they march. He had used his authority and failed. Now he resolved not to command, but to persuade. So he called his men together again, and as he looked at them, he wept. Their grim, stern commander, shedding tears. The soldiers stared at him in open-eyed wonder. Then Clearchus bade them see in how difficult a position they had placed him, for he must either fail Cyrus or forsake them. Forsake them he could not, so he declared, for were they not his country, his friends, and his allies. These words pleased the soldiers well, but what pleased them even more was that when Cyrus sent to ask their commander to go to his tent, he refused to go. But they were less content when Clearchus reminded them that as they refused to follow Cyrus, they could no longer expect him to give them food or wages. What, he asked them, did they mean to do? All that they could do was to send a few of their number to the prince, to ask him where he intended to lead them. Cyrus answered that he was taking them to the river of Euphrates to fight against a Persian rebel, and at the same time, he offered to increase their wages if they would obey Clearchus. The Greeks were far from home, and not knowing what else to do, they agreed to follow their commander. But they did not trust Cyrus, and they still suspected that he wished to march beyond the river Euphrates. And when they reached the river, their suspicions proved true for Cyrus told them plainly that he was going to Babylon to dethrone his brother Artaxerxes. As the Euphrates was unusually shallow, the army was able to cross over on foot, and soon afterwards it was in the desert of Arabia. Xenophon tells us that the desert was smooth as the sea, there were no large trees in all the great expanse, but there were many shrubs that had a pleasant scent. 
The soldiers did not find the march across the desert dull, for they saw many strange beasts, unlike any they had ever seen. Wild asses, ostriches, antelopes, and these they hunted with zest. When the desert lay behind them, they found themselves in a land where fields had been dug and gardens tended. Here, too, a little before them, was Artaxerxes, with a great army, ready to fight to the death for his crown. The king was encamped at a place called Canaske, where in the summer of 401 BC, a battle was fought. Strange as it may seem, before a blow was struck, the Persians were seized with panic and turned to flee. Only Tissaphernes at the head of the cavalry stood firm. Cyrus with a small body of men, about six hundred in number, dashed upon the centre of the army, for there, surrounded by six thousand horsemen, was Artaxerxes. The guards scattered before his fierce attack, and the king turned to flee with them. Then Cyrus, careless of aught save his desire to slay his brother and gain his crown, galloped after him, attended by only a few of his own men. As he drew near to the king, he hurled a javelin at him and wounded him slightly. Almost at the same moment, Cyrus himself was wounded in the eye, and shortly after, he fell from his horse and was slain. Cyrus was dead, and ten thousand Greek soldiers were left alone with their generals in a strange land surrounded by enemies. Tissaphernes pretended to be a friend to the Greeks and offered to guide them safely home. So the two armies set out together, but before long, the Greek soldiers grew suspicious of the Persians. To reassure the men, Tissaphernes invited Clearchus and his captains to his tent. The Greek general accepted the invitation and, never dreaming of treachery, he went to the Persians' tent with four other generals, twenty captains and a few soldiers. No sooner had they entered than the captain and soldiers were seized and put to death by order of Tissaphernes. Clearchus and the other generals were loaded with chains and sent to the king. Artaxerxes commanded that they too should be put to death. The Persians believed that the Greek army would now be forced to surrender, for, alone in an unknown land, without a leader, how could they hope to reach their own country? But the greatness of their danger roused the courage of the Greeks. Xenophon, 
who was at the time only a young man, made an eloquent speech to the army, bidding them choose new generals and obey them, for in this way only could they hope to escape from their enemy. The men did as he advised, choosing Xenophon himself as one of the new generals. And now began the retreat of the ten thousand through untold difficulties. To go back the same way as they had come was impossible, for the road would be guarded by Persians. So they turned to the north and marched through a wild and barren country where fierce hillmen held the narrow passes through which they must pass. Sometimes the savage tribes hurled down upon them from the heights great pieces of rocks, and the soldiers lived in dread of being crushed to death by their unseen foes. When they reached Armenia, it was December and bitterly cold. They were overtaken by a snowstorm so severe that many of the men lost their way. In vain they tried to rejoin their comrades, and at length, utterly worn out, they stumbled into great snowdrifts or lay down on the road to die. Still the army struggled bravely on, in the face of the biting north wind, until at length it reached the tributary of the river Euphrates. This they crossed in safety, to find that most of their difficulties were over, for soon after they reached a city called Gymnias. Gymnias was a prosperous mining town, and the inhabitants welcomed the ten thousand gladly, and gave them food and shelter, after they had heard of the terrible difficulties through which the men had come. But the soldiers did not linger long in Gymnias. They were eager to set out again, for a guide promised that in five days he would bring them to the sea. On the fifth day, the Greeks came to a hill, and when the van reached the summit, a great cry arose. When Xenophon and those at the rear heard it, they thought that an enemy was attacking in front. But when the cry increased, as fresh men continually came up to the summit, Xenophon thought it must be something more serious, and galloped forward to the front of the cavalry. As he drew near, he heard what the cry was. The sea, the sea. A few days more, and the ten thousand were on Greek soil. Here they rested for a month, offering glad sacrifices of thanksgiving to Zeus, who had brought them back in safety to their own land. Chapter 80 Pelopidas and Epaminondas When Sparta heard that Artaxerxes had been able neither to force the ten thousand to surrender, nor to slay them, 
she thought that his army could not be very powerful. So, confident in her own strength, she went to war against the great king, dreaming that she would conquer Persia and add it to her dominions. But instead of conquering the country, the Spartans were so often defeated that, in 387 BC, they were willing to make peace on any terms which Artaxerxes chose to make. And the king saw to it that the terms were severe, for he damned that the Greek city in Asia, which had now been free for ninety years, should once again acknowledge him as their lord. To those Greeks who loved their country truly, it seemed better to fight to death than to accept such terms. Nor will you wonder at this as you read the proud words in which the king couched his demands. King Artaxerxes thinks it just, he wrote, that the Greek cities in Asia should belong to him. He also thinks it just to leave all the other Grecian cities, both small and great, independent, except three cities, which are to belong to Athens as of old. Should any parties refuse to accept this peace, I will make war upon them, along with those who are of the same mind, both by land and sea, with ships and with money. The states of Greece accepted these terms, which were carved on stones and placed in their temples, so that it could be seen by all that Greece was no longer free. Although Sparta had been defeated by the Persians, she was the most powerful state in Greece. Wishing to add to her possessions, she determined to seize the little town of Thebes, which at this time was friendly with Athens. The two governors of Thebes, Leontiades and Ismenias, did not get on well together. Leontiades disliked his colleague so bitterly that he was ready even to betray his city, if by doing so he could injure Ismenias. In September 382 BC, a Spartan army, led by a general named Phobidus, chanced to be marching through Boeotia. Not far from the walls of Thebes, the soldiers halted to rest. Leontiades thought this was the opportunity for which he had been waiting. He would be able to get rid of Ismenias with the help of the Spartans. They had already determined to seize the town, but this the traitor did not know. He went secretly to the camp, asked for Phobidus, and was admitted to the general's tent. He at once offered to open the gates of Thebes to the Spartans on the following day. It would be an easy matter to seize the citadel if the gates were opened, 
for on the morrow, a festival kept by women alone was to be held there, while at noon the men would be in their houses, dozing during the hottest part of the day. The Spartan general was as eager to take the city as Leontiades could desire, and the traitor slipped back to the city, thinking of nothing save that Ismenias would soon be out of his way. At noon on the following day, the Spartans marched to the gates of Thebes, and there, according to his compact, was Leontiades waiting to admit them. Silently he drew the keys from under his cloak, unlocked the gates, and Phobidus at the head of the two thousand men entered the city. They made their way at once to the citadel, took possession of it, and made the women, who were keeping the festival, prisoners. Before long, the men of Thebes roused themselves from their noontide nap, to find, to their dismay, that their wives and daughters were in the hands of the Spartans. Leontiades ordered his rival, Ismenias, to be arrested, and soon after the miserable governor was sent to Sparta and cruelly put to death. Three hundred Thebans, who were determined not to submit to Sparta, succeeded in escaping from the city and reaching Athens. Many who wished to flee did not dare to do so, lest in their absence harm should befall their wives and daughters. Leontiades was rewarded for his treachery by being still allowed to rule in Thebes, along with a Spartan general. So harshly did Leontiades use his power that the people hated him but years passed before the tyrant's power was wrested from him. During these years, those who had fled to Athens often heard from the miserable Thebans of the hardships they suffered under the stern rule of Leontiades. Among the exiles was a young nobleman named Pelopidas. Often he would tell his fellow exiles that it was dishonourable to dwell in comfort in Athens while their city was not free, and he would urge them to march against the Spartans and banish them from Thebes. Pelopidas had a great friend in Thebes named Epaminondas, and although the two friends did brave deeds not only for their city but for Greece, they are remembered most of all for the great love they bore each to the other. Both were of noble birth, but Pelopidas was rich, and Epaminondas was poor. Pelopidas had a generous nature, and used his money to help those who were not so well off as he. Even among his friends, many were quick to accept his kindness, but Epaminondas would never take from him either gold or gifts. Pelopidas resolved 
if Epaminondas would not share his wealth, he should share his friend's poverty. So he bade his slaves lay aside his soft, silk robes, that he might clad himself in garments as simple as those of Epaminondas. He would allow no rich dishes to be set before him at the table, but he ordered that his food should be both plain and scanty. In the camp, he endured hardships as a common soldier. In war, he showed himself bold as a lion. The friends were clever and well-trained, both in mind and body, but Pelopidas was often to be found in the fields, while Epaminidas was listening to lectures. Each longed to serve his country well, but no touch of jealousy disturbed the beauty of their friendship. It was founded deep on reverence and love. Some years before the treachery of Leontiades, when the Spartans were at war with Athens, the Thebans had sent a troop of soldiers to the aid of Sparta. Among the soldiers were the two friends. The company with which the Theban soldiers fought was beaten, and many fled from the field. But Pelopidas and Epaminondas joined their shields together and fought on bravely. Pelopidas was wounded seven times, and at length, faint with the loss of blood, he fell to the ground. Epaminondas thought that his comrade was dead, but he resolved that the enemy should neither have the arms nor the body of his friend. So he stood over him with his shield, willing rather to die than forsake his helpless Pelopidas. Soon Epaminondas himself was so severely wounded that he was no longer able to defend the body of his friend. Had not the king of Sparta chanced to see his danger, and with a few followers dashed to his rescue, he would have been slain by the foe. But the king carried off both Epaminidas and Pelopidas, who was then found to be still alive. Pelopidas recovered, although his wounds had been severe, and never did he forget that it was his friend who had saved his life. Chapter 81 The Seven Conspirators Three years passed before the Theban exiles, encouraged by Pelopidas formed a plot to deliver their city from the Spartans. They were helped in their plans by Philidus, a Theban who had stayed in the city and become secretary to the Spartan governors and Archias and Philippus. He had taken this position under the enemy that he might be able to better help his own countrymen. He agreed with Pelopidas that the time to act had come. Epaminondas was also in Thebes, but he would have nothing to do with the plot. 
he would fight when the time for fighting came. But to slay even tyrants unawares was not to his liking. Pelopidas and six other exiles did not share the scruples of Epaminidas. They disguised themselves as farmers or country folk, and one evening, reaching Thebes as it began to grow dark, they slipped one by one at different times into the city. They then found their way to the house of a citizen named Sharon, who had promised to shelter them. Snow was falling and the streets were nearly deserted, so that the return of the exiles was unnoticed. On the following day, Archias and Philippus were to be present at the great banquet. Philidus, the secretary, had promised to bring to the feast seven beautiful Theban women. He told no one that the promised guests were the seven exiles who had resolved to don a second disguise to enable them to be present at the banquet. The day of the feast passed slowly for the conspirators, but at length evening came that were to make them appear like beautiful women when a loud knock came at the door. Already the long day had tired them sorely, and the knocking filled them with foreboding. When the door opened, their hearts beat quicker, for there stood a soldier who bade Sharon to come to the banqueting hall without delay. Had Sharon betrayed them? The exiles looked uncertainly one at the other. Then they grew ashamed of their distrust, and bade their host hasten to Archias, to ally his suspicions, if indeed they had been aroused. Sharon was brave and true, and he knew that the lives of the seven men were in his hand. He hoped that they had trusted him, yet he wished to dispel any doubt they might have. So he hastened to the nursery of his little son, and carrying the child to Pelopidas, he placed him in his arms, saying, If you find me a traitor, treat the boy as an enemy without any mercy. But the exiles protested, and truly, that they trusted him well, and needed no such hostage, while Pelopidas bade him take the child back to his nurse. Archias and his secretary were awaiting him, and Archias said, I have heard, Sharon, that there are some men just come lurking into town. We fear lest they have come to stir up the citizens. Who are they? Where are they hidden? asked Sharon, for he wished to find out how much Archias knew. But Archias knew nothing. It was but a rumour that had reached him. Do not disturb yourself because of a rumour, said Sharon, who had now no fear of discovery. There are many tales told in the marketplace, but I will find out if there is truth in what you have heard. 
Arceus was glad to leave the matter with Sharon, for he was impatient to go back to the feast. So Sharon hastened back to the hill house to tell Pelopius and his comrades that the fears were needless, for Arceus suspected nothing. But although Sharon did not know it, a letter was at that moment being placed in the hands of Arceus that might easily have ruined both him and his conspirators, for it told Arceus the whole plot as well as the names of those who had taken part in it. The letter had been sent from Athens, and as the messenger handed it to the Spartan governor, he said, The writer of this desired that it might be read at once. It is on urgent business. But Archias could think of nothing that night save the banquet and the beautiful Theban women who should now soon arrive. Thrusting the letter unopened under the cushion on which his head rested, Archias cried, a smile upon his face, Urgent business tomorrow. And these words were ever after used as a proverb by the Greeks. The conspirators had now reached the hall. Their beautiful dresses were wide and loose, for beneath their splendour they wore armour. On their heads were garlands of pine and fir, so that their faces might not be seen. Arceus and his guests clapped their hands gleefully. Here at last were the beautiful Theban women, whose presence Philidas had promised should grace the banquet. But in a moment, the conspirators had torn off their disguise. Arceus and Philippus were slain almost before they had time to realize their fate, while the guests who had rushed to their aid were also put to death. Pelopidas and his comrades then hastened to the house of Leontiades, but he heard them knocking at the door and when they rushed into his room a few seconds later, he met them with his sword drawn and slew the first man who entered. A terrible struggle then took place between Leontiades and Pelopidas, but at length the traitor was wounded to death. The conspirators then ran to the prison, ordered the gates to be opened, and the prisoners to be set free and armed, for their only crime had been loyalty to their city. As day began to dawn, troops from Athens poured into the city to help the Thebans. The Spartans fought fiercely, but after a few days the garrison was forced to surrender, and once again Thebes was free. The grateful citizens then assembled in the marketplace, where the priests crowned Pelopidas and Sharon, while the people appointed them governors of the city.